Welcome to the Vintage Saints and Sinners podcast. I'm Karen Wright Marsh, and this is the place to find beautiful and broken companions for your everyday pilgrimage. Do you wonder if Christian faith can be truly lived in today's complex and changing world? Well, here you'll meet embodied witnesses, Christians from different eras and different cultures. They're people we sometimes call saints, but they were also sinners just like you and me. Today, I'm here to tell you the story of Augustine with the historian, author, and Episcopal priest, Lauren Winner. I'm very happy you're here with us. There's a good chance that you've heard of Augustine, but if you'd met him in the fourth century as a college freshman, you wouldn't have considered him saint material. When Augustine arrived at the University of Carthage from his backwater Algerian hometown, he was ready to revel. Later he would say, I came to Carthage where all around me hissed a cauldron of illicit loves. Augustine already had a record of drinking, stealing, and promiscuity. He ran with a group of wild proto-fraternity brothers called the Wreckers. By 18, he'd fathered a baby with his girlfriend, a young woman considered below his social standing. Even young Augustine's mother, Monica, had serious doubts about the state of his soul. Devout Monica was like other helicopter moms through the ages, She'd raised her son in the church and urged him to follow Christ, but he would have none of it. And so Monica prayed for her wayward son and prayed and prayed and prayed. Meanwhile, life at the university promised social advancement, intellectual reward, and physical pleasure. Augustine was captivated by the cutting-edge philosophy of the great Roman orator Cicero. He finished at the top of his rhetoric class, and ambitious Augustine sailed across the sea to Rome, where he landed a teaching position in Milan. Augustine was attracted to the ideal of the cultivated, tranquil life, inspired by Cicero's words, by the guidance of wisdom, one may become a good and a happy man. Yet, despite his professional success, Augustine's personal and spiritual reality was a confusion of loneliness, addiction, and guilt. Then Augustine met an unexpected Christian, Ambrose, the dynamic Bishop of Milan, whose smart sermons built a bridge between the philosophical wisdom of Cicero and the deeper truth of Christ. Ambrose was a caring new friend who was worthy of Augustine's gifted mind and accepting of his struggling heart. Augustine's memoir, Confessions, recounts a growing tension. Beyond the intellectual wrangling, a spiritual crisis emerged. Would he decide for God or against God? 
on the precipice, Augustine hesitated, for he knew that if he decided for God, it would mean abandoning his old pleasure-seeking compulsions. Augustine wrote, I felt that I was still the captive of my sins, and in misery I kept crying. How long shall I go on saying, tomorrow, tomorrow, why not now? Why not make an end of my ugly sins at this moment? Ready to give up, he flung himself down on the ground in frustrated tears. It's a famous scene in the annals of Christian conversion stories. Augustine was lying under a fig tree in full tantrum mode, sobbing so loudly that he nearly missed a small high voice singing through the garden. Was it a boy? Was it a girl? He couldn't say, but the child was chanting the refrain, take it and read, take it and read. Augustine looked up, puzzled. Take it and read? What kind of childhood game was this? He'd certainly never played it before. What a strange way to hear from God. The Holy One didn't arrive in a consuming fire or a supernatural lightning bolt. No intellectually compelling sermon prompted a tearful walk down the aisle at the altar call. Instead, God invited Augustine into a game, calling out as a sweetly melodic child a chant heard across the orchard. Augustine realized in a flash that take it and read was a prompt to grab a Bible, and the book fell open to Romans 13, to the passage that reads, not in reveling and drunkenness, not in lust and wantonness, not in quarrels and rivalries. Rather, arm yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. Spend no more thought on nature and nature's appetites. These were verses on the mark just for him. As he read the words of scripture, Augustine felt confidence flood his heart and light dispel his dark doubts. The Holy Spirit released Augustine from himself, loosening the tangles that had tied him up inside. The young man marked the place and closed the book. In the end, Augustine exhausted his own strength, his own intelligence, his own ambition. He had not been rescued by his attempts to change himself, not even his belief in God was enough. Augustine suffered through broken relationships, destructive habits, intellectual crises, and emotional ups and downs. But at long last, God intervened and freed Augustine out of his divided self, not through a philosophical argument, but in a simple, playful, divine invitation. And so it was that Augustine the sinner became a saint as well. That ambitious reveler from the University of Carthage went on to be a role model of faith. His journey took him right back where he started, to Africa. Augustine returned to form a Christian community. For many years, he served as a priest and then as a bishop, writing, preaching, and serving the church, even as invading vandals battered at the gates of the city and the Roman Empire fell. To the end, Augustine prayed these now famous words, God, you have formed us for yourself 
and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. The Vintage Saints and Sinners podcast is the audio companion to my book, Vintage Saints and Sinners, 25 Christians Who Transformed My Faith. To learn more, visit my website, karenwrightmarsh.com. Please rate and review this podcast on iTunes and invite your friends to join us. Now for my conversation about Augustine with Lauren Winner. Well, I am thrilled to welcome Lauren Winner to the Vintage Saints and Sinners podcast. Lauren is a historian, an author, a lecturer, and an Episcopal priest. She is Associate Professor of Christian Spirituality at Duke Divinity School. Lauren writes and lectures on Christian practice, on the history of Christianity in America, and on Jewish-Christian relations. She writes for the New York Times Book Review, the Washington Post Book World, Publishers Weekly, and Christianity Today. Lauren Winner has written a number of terrific books, including Girl Meets God, Mudhouse Sabbath, Still, Notes on a Midlife Crisis, which I recommend, and a book on biblical tropes for God calling Wearing God. Lauren's kind-heartedness is evidenced by the fact that she generously wrote the foreword to my own book, Vintage Saints and Sinners. So welcome, Lauren, to the Vintage Saints and Sinners podcast. Thanks. I feel super honored to be here. Well, let's talk about Augustine. Oh, Augustine. <laughs> he tells us in his confessions so much about his wild youth, his tormented young adulthood. And so I have to ask, uh, Lauren, what could you tell us about your own life during those days? You know, in what ways would you say your stories are like his or in what ways are they different? I actually am not completely sure that I agree with your characterization of what Augustine says. And I think there's a way in which, like, maybe he doesn't really tell us that much about his youth. Obviously, he tells us that famous story about stealing the pear when he's quite young. And he, you know, makes a, a few comments about his attraction to women and his relationship with the, with the one woman whom he does not name. Tell me what you think when you say he tells us so much, like, what strikes you as so exposing, if you will, about him. Yeah. Well, I kind of latch onto this idea in which, you know, he's at the University of Carthage and he's left his mother Monica behind. And I think there's definitely evidence for that, that he goes off to school and can't wait to get, get away from his pious mother. Yeah. His, his account of his relationship with his mother is so interesting and complex and multi-layered. I will say I definitely relate to the, the notion of a complex and multi-layered relationship with one's mother to be sure. <laughs> but what do you hear him? So you'd kind of disagree with my characterization or my projection. So what's your interpretation? I mean, we're talking about his, his work, The Confessions, and maybe in a few minutes we might touch on some of his other works. But The Confessions is, of course, this sort of great autobiographical writing. But it is important, I think, that it is called a confession in that he, well, and I take confession there to mean both a profession of faith and worship, a confession of praise, and also a confession of failing. So there's a very autobiographical piece of a confession, like when we think of making a confession of your sins, but there's mm -hmm. also this very God-directed, a, a confession of praise, a confession of belief. And I think it's really striking that he has 
ordered, certainly there is autobiographical material, and certainly he is self-revealing in, in the text, but that he's ordered that sort of in the shape of what is necessary to give his account to and about God. So in that way, it actually is kind of like a modern day memoir where like a good memoir is not actually everything that's ever happened to you in the kitchen sink. and But that in a contemporary memoir, we want to see things ordered to a particular narrative thread or around a particular narrative arc. And he has, you know, he has chosen the arc of confession of and to God. You know, I was just talking to some young adults, college students today, and we were talking about how authenticity and vulnerability are the great new values. I mean, what strikes you as being authentic in that way? Or maybe that's not even a category for him in this in this confessions. Yeah, I think authenticity is an interesting word. And I do think there's a lot in the confessions that resonates with me. When I sit with the confessions, I do see a lot of myself articulated in what Augustine articulates about his own self and his own experience as a self. He doesn't always know why he does what he does. And there's this way in which he's aware that he is opaque to himself. Mm-hmm. And I think I very much resonate with that. And then I think another thread that feels that feels really resonant, and I would use the word authentic, is this thing that seems really clear to me from the confessions is that he shows us that you can believe you should do something but that's different from actually doing the thing that you believe you should do right yeah and Mm -hmm. this is sort of the way in which his own conversion is kind of drawn out is that he first has a conversion of kind of knowing on the one hand he comes to to know something of the truth of Christianity and he becomes sort of intellectually converted or converted at the level of knowing. But that's mm-hmm. that is distinct from the conversion of his whole self and his whole commitment. And this is why his, you know, his conversion isn't just a dateable 10 or 3 in the morning, snap your fingers kind of conversion. And I don't I don't say that glibly. Like I obviously some people do have a single decisive moment where everything is changed. But it seems that what Augustine is showing us as a model for conversion, but but even for maybe something less grand, just a model for growth and maturity and change, is that you can come to know something is right or know, in his case, you know, know that Christianity is the truth, but yet still not be prepared to to do <laughs> what yeah. that knowledge would seem to suggest you ought to do. And I, I think I think that's true of a lot of us. It is certainly true of me that knowing that I should do something does not always mean that I will do the thing that I know I should do. Well, you know, it feels like almost everyone has heard the name of Augustine, but why is Augustine so significant uh, to the history of Christianity? Yeah, that's a really good question. He wrote a lot, and he was very careful that his writings be preserved. And I think this also goes to his character and maybe something that we today kind of relate to him about. He was an ambitious person, you know, and he was Mm, ambitious as a youth, and his parents couldn't really give him very much. They could kind of give him an education, but he, he wasn't coming into the world with, like, every single advantage you know he was a a guy on the make and even after he became a christian 
and became a bishop and so forth, he he had a lot of confidence and he believed that his ideas actually were going to be important for the shape of Christianity. And so he he took some care <laughs> that those yeah. ideas could be preserved in a form that would, would get to us. Of course, he did have a lot of, of ideas that were influential and that, of course, over the history of Christian tradition evolved. So I think one of the ideas we often associate with Augustine is the idea of original sin. But I would say that what he gives us is a sense that we humans here, even in the 21st century, are in some profound way connected to, in solidarity with, not severable from Adam and Eve. He certainly thought about politics in ways that have very lasting importance for the church. And as we are in a particularly complex and freighted political moment here in the United States. So I have been thinking more in in recent months about Augustine's view of the state, view of politics, and his his sense that um, I think the very clear and very powerful and very important insight that no earthly political system can be identified with the city of God or with the church, that earthly political systems are are never to be confused with the church, with the city of God. And then in particular, I've been thinking lately about his criteria or his sense of what discriminates a better state from a worse state. Our current situation and the particular presence of the state, the state in all of our lives, which for, for some of us is, is sort of new, I think has surfaced for me again the the ongoing importance of Augustinian political thought. Well, and I think it's so helpful for all of us to remember that the conversations we're having publicly and with one another, you know, the ideas that we bring up are not new to us. Uh, you know, to, to think that Augustine was talking about these ideas, and of course, you know, these are all conversations that we've been having for for centuries. Absolutely. And another text of Augustine's that I went back to a couple of weeks ago because of our current situation with the pandemic is a shorter piece, you know, not quite as famous as the Confessions, not quite as famous as the City of God, a shorter piece called On the Caring for the Bodies of the Dead. Um, And it was occasioned, someone wrote to Augustine and said, essentially, is it better if you can, as a Christian, get your loved one buried next to like the shrine to a saint, is it better to do that? Is that going to like be a better thing for your loved one in, in eternity? And Augustine writes this not super long tract in response. I think the specific situation in question was a mother who was, I believe, bearing her son. And Augustine saw in that mother's desire to bury her son near the shrine to a saint, um, he said that very desire to bury him there is itself a prayer. Oh. And exactly. So so lovely. And that it is it is good to pray for the dead for a whole host of reasons, but one of those reasons is what that prayer for the dead does for the spirits of those of us who are praying. And that when we take care, again, he reassures that those who, for whatever circumstantial reason, can't have a, a perfect burial for your loved one, you know, God is still going to resurrect whom God will resurrect, but that in our care to care for the bodies of our dead, that that is prayer for them. 
that's a, a sign of, of our intimate care for and, and ongoing connection with the, with the person's soul. So it's been very moving and meaningful to me to reread this work of Augustine about caring for the dead in this situation of COVID-19 and the pandemic. I am, among other things, the priest of a very small Episcopal church. And I think many of us who are from a pastoral position involved in funerals are having to make somewhat complicated decisions, right? We keep reading about funerals as yeah. like super spreader events, right? And different right. different ecclesial bodies are carving out different regulations right now for what kind of funeral practices are are permitted or encouraged or forbidden or discouraged. So these questions of how we care for the the bodies of our dead friends and neighbors are are sort of very front and center. So I have really been grateful to return to that text of Augustine about caring for the body of the dead. And you really hear his pastoral heart coming through. And, and as you said, as a priest yourself, you I can hear you really connect with him at that level. Um, not only the, the level of ideas, but the love of compassion and care for his people. That's kind. <laughs> of you to say. I'm not so sure that I'm the most compassionate and loving pastor, but I hope to grow in that area. Well, let's, I, I'd like to talk about one more thing in this conversation, which could go on and on because it's, it's fascinating to hear all these different threads of Augustine. Let's talk about that conversion story. What do you find notable in that event, or at least his retelling of it? Well, I think maybe the thing that I find most notable in the conversion story is the sense that his conversion story unfolds in acts or waves or shifts or scenes so that there there is this sense that he he is converted at the level of knowledge and knowing something of the truth of Christianity but he's not really prepared to do what he needs to do to be baptized and then there's this sort of second stage Augustinian language would be conversion of the will, where he he does become able and prepared to do what he needs to do. And that's that famous tole lege scene, right, take and read, where something happens that sweeps away his final resistance. So that's, that's one thing that really strikes me about his conversion story. A second thing that really strikes me, and Karen, you know that I'm just a total bookworm, so it's not going to surprise you that this is, this is the other thing I find really striking about his conversion is that Augustine has read other conversion accounts and his own conversion and or his own literary representation of that conversion is in some ways responsive to or patterned on this tradition of Christian conversion that he has read his way into and through. And I kind of love that. But this is another way in which reading is a big piece of his conversion. And I think there's a way in which there's kind of a, a great comfort in the notion that I think for many of us, certainly for, for me, my own conversion to Christianity when I was in my early 20s was in some ways a pretty dramatic and shattering and complicated event for me. And it felt very, very sort of self-consuming. There's a way in which it's comforting to know that that is, it is a profound and existential individual thing, and a conversion is participating in a whole history and kind of choreography and pattern of conversion, patterns. God has 
has choreographies that God seems to prefer <laughs> so that God, there are patterns to how we are drawn into new life with God. And I think we really see that in Augustine. Yeah. Thank you for talking through Augustine as a political thinker, as a pastor, as a, as a writer, as a reader, and for sharing a bit about your, your life and your understanding of Augustine. And of course, I'll have to go back and reread those uh, accounts of his youth. You've, you've given me a lot to think about. Thank you for the conversation today, Lauren. Thank you. Winner helps me see Augustine's model for conversion in a new way. His confessions read, in many ways, like a current day memoir. Augustine's authenticity, the revelations of his inner struggles, his hopes, his breakthroughs, it all feels like an invitation to reflect upon my own spiritual journey. Augustine points me in the direction of growth and maturity and change. There's hope for me after all.